can be worship. But really the whole idea here is that every part of our life can be an act of worship. If, if, if the Bible says whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, whether you eat or drink, as, as mundane as that can be, whatever we do and how we do it can reflect positively on God and, and show that we've been marked by Him and He's made a difference in our life. You know, there, uh, the, the word work has how many letters in it? Four letters. Okay, it's four letters, but it's not necessarily a curse word, all right? We need to realize that. Is that even in the very beginning, and the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings, and the first um, part of that book, the first two chapters, as God brought man and woman into this world, he gave them work to do. And so work became, came before the fall. The fall didn't come to Genesis chapter 3. And all that has done, or has done many things, but amongst the other things it has done to us, it's made work harder, but it hasn't lost the significance of our work. Whatever we do matters to God. And in many ways, that's, that's, the, that's the takeaway I want us all to take home with it, is that whatever we do, our work matters to God. And either we reflect in such a way that because of how we do what we do and the things that we are doing, does that does that shine positively about our Creator and, and who and what He means to us? And so we're going to look at that this morning. But also I, I knew in deference, in deference maybe to the first service is that some of you have reached that stage of life where you're no longer working full-time. Uh, you might have reached those retirement years, but that doesn't mean you've stopped working. Have you found that you still have to go home and do some things before you get a meal or before you do whatever needs to be done? We're, we're always doing things, and we're going to be looking at a to-do list this morning. And so I want you to expand your perspective on, on work, uh, whether it's volunteer work or whether it's just being a good neighbor or, or whether it's involved in people's lives in a meaningful way, family, relationships. Uh, those, those sometimes can be work. Have you found that to be true? You know, sometimes your, your family relationships, your friendship relationships, people in need, it, 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 it takes some work. It just this doesn't flow. It's not always natural or easy. And, and, and part of work, you know, work, and there is a toil to work. There's a labor involved in work. Um, but when a work is done well and, and, it's, and the, the right things are done, there, there is a sense of, of joy and satisfaction from that, isn't it? You, you just sense, I, I've done something meaningful, something important. And, and so what I, I want to emphasize is whatever stage of life, whatever things you're doing, uh, and, and you need to realize that what you're doing and how you're doing, it matters to God. And it's always mattered to God. It's we don't compartmentalize our Christian life. Okay, we, we're trying to be spiritual at church or in our life group or if we're doing something religious. Um, and then the rest of the time, we just do our own thing. Every part of who we are um, can be a part of our relationship with God. It just flows from that. And so we're going to see that th- this morning as we look at God's Word. But as often the case, whenever I preach, I, often when I preach, I'm thinking, you know, I need to, I need to preach that again because I'm not sure you got it, you know, or I'm not sure I got it. And, and so we're going to back up just a little bit because as we think about seeing Christ in our lives individually, collectively as a church, or in our homes and relationships with our kids or our spouse, um, and also as we look at our place of employment or a place where we volunteer or we do life, it's one thing to talk about it here, it's one thing to actually have it happen out there. It's not quite as easy as we do it because life happens. Have you discovered that? Life just happens. And 
And sometimes you begin a day and the day's just not beginning well. And then halfway through the day, it's not any better than how it started. And at the end, you're thinking, why did I even begin this day? And, and, and so as we think about that, how do we live in a way that Christ becomes real to us in, in our, our daily grind uh, sometimes as, as we experience it? Well, it gets back to what, what are the things we need to remember daily? And let me just do that real quickly this morning. We need to remember daily, if we've crossed that line, and, and what I'm talking, or who I'm talking to at this moment is, if people who once were lost but now have been found, those who once were unsaved and now are saved, those who once were, were, were condemned in their sin and now have been forgiven. And if you're not on that side of the, uh, the fence yet, this is the place and this is the time to make that step. Because if you're going to encounter God in a personal way, you've, you've got to cross that line where you trust not in yourselves, but the one who came for you, who died on the cross and rose again and say, I want to give my life, surrender my life to him. But, but once you do that, well, then how, how is that supposed to be lived out? Because we do bring baggage with us. And that baggage is our own flesh, those, those patterns of the old life that we can sometimes fall back into. We have that world that tries to press us into its mold. We have an enemy, which we'll be talking about in, uh, next Lord's Day, Lord willing, as we think about we, we have a, an invisible not only means of support, but we have an invisible means of attack. In the midst of all that, how, how, do, we, how do we live this out? Well, it begins with understanding your position. You need to see yourself as God sees you. And God sees you now as a child of God. Who, who are you? You are a, a child of the King, that, that you are now in Christ and Christ is in you. You are, you are a new creature. You have a new identity. For, for the Christian, we should never really lose the battle on, on the struggle for self-image, self-esteem, self-identity, whatever you want to call that, self-worth, because we are the greatest thing in this universe. I mean, you can't get any better than being part of God's eternal family. You are a child of God. And there's nothing you can do once you cross that line of faith that anybody, uh, that you can lose that or anybody can take it away from you. And, and so when you're having a bad hair day, recognize that, hey, God's still on the throne. You are a child of His. You, you, you have an identity that, that is, is immeasurable in terms of anyone's standards. When people are grading, you know, your worth, God sees you at the top of the list because you're one of his children. So always remember your position. But then in relation to that, you always need to remember your purpose. Because if you're like me, many times I think people are kind of, they're, they're messing with my life. You have people mess with your life and you have these things you want to do or want to accomplish or, or things are important to you. And then people just mess with that. And, and you're thinking, how can I... How can I get life worked out if people keep changing the things on the, the game board? But we need to realize in the midst of all that, that those things that we count so important, and, and we have things we have to do in life, but the things that really matter, which is our purpose, never changes. I, I'm to live to God's glory and to become more like Jesus. And nothing can, in, can change that main purpose. You know, someone might ram into my car and, and mess it up. Someone could, could uh, steal my financial identity, whatever it might be. And those things didn't happen this week. But I'm just saying, any, any of those things could happen. 
and I can still respond in such a way I want to become more like Jesus. I want to, I want to give God the glory. And, and so that always is important or we'll get so preoccupied about things that don't matter. And then thirdly, when we feel we're incapable of living a life that honors God, we need to recognize we have all the power that we need. The living God takes residence in our lives when we become His child. The Spirit of God lives within us. He empowers us, and His Word, His Word guides us. I was watching a, a movie with Alice. It was at, actually ended up being a Christian film, and and you know sometimes Christian films are really captivating, sometimes they're not. But at the end of it, there was this big battle. At the end, it was a this guy who was playing basketball for this high school team, and he was kind of the the bench player and. The, the star player got hurt, and he had to get up to the, it, it, it was the end of the games for the championship, and he had to make the free throws, one free throw to, to tie the game and one free throw to win the game. And this one player who, who, uh, who really didn't like this Christian, and, and, and now he, he desperately wanted to make the free throws, he said, well, don't you Christians have some kind of verses you can quote and they'll make you make, it, make the basket? And he goes, yeah, we have, I've been crucified. I know, no, he didn't say that one. He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, I want you to understand, that verse does not promise that you can leap tall buildings in a single bound, all right? It doesn't mean you can run faster than a bullet, all right? It does not mean that. It doesn't mean at the end of the game you can make a free throw, all right? It means that no matter what happens in life, that you can be content and experience the joy of God and knowing you're on purpose because you're living for Him. That's why Paul put that verse in the midst of, I'm in prison, and whether I got a lot or a little, I can have a life that matters and empowered to live beyond my circumstances when I'm resting in Him. And, and so as we think about doing life and as we go through various stages in life, there are different challenges, you can still live to God's glory, right? No matter what your age. You, you can still become more like Jesus no matter whether you're really young or whether you're on the more mature side. Uh, whether your freedoms are restricted in terms of things you can do compared to what you used to do, you can still live for Jesus. And God can empower you through your pain and through your limitations to be what Jesus wants you to be. I was reading this uh, past week. You know, sometimes we, we, uh, we think there comes an age when there's, what we do doesn't matter. But here, here's some just even people in our world that have accomplished great things at various ages. Immanuel Kant wrote one of his best philosophical works at the age of 74. Verdi penned his classic Ava Maria at 85. Michelangelo was 87 when he completed the Piazza, his greatest work of art. And Ronald Reagan became the most powerful man in the world at age 75. You know, it doesn't matter what our age is. It, 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 we recognize who we are. We're a child of God. We have a purpose to give God glory. And, and part of that is as we have a purpose statement for a church, honoring God by helping more people become fully devoted followers of Christ. There are people within your relational world that you can be a testimony to and, and show Jesus to. And then thirdly, we have that power working within us. But as we think about that, God does want us to realize that His Word gives us guidance in terms of specific areas of our life. And one of the areas of our life is work. I think on the, on the video it said, at least on an occupational level, is that we, we, we might spend half of our lifetime at work. And even now, whether you're working at home as a retired person or um, you are doing a lot of volunteer work, uh, 
how you respond to the people you work with and the circumstances you work under or in matters to God. Because work can be worship, which means it gives a positive perspective of what happens when people come to know Jesus and how it changes how they interact and do the things they need to do. So Paul, with that kind of a backdrop, um, and, and really this is the context of all of Ephesians, which I've already just said, is he gives some instructions now to the workplace. And if you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. I'll read the passage, and then we'll go back and kind of pick some things apart. Uh, Paul writes, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up, threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. And what I want to do, and if you have your outline, you can kind of follow me, is I just kind of, I, I, I just kind of looked at these verses, and Paul had the, had the kind of the practice of, of writing something, and then he would amplify and qualify it and then he would say it again and they said i want to make sure they get it so he qualified and amplified again and then he would say it, and then he and then he'd go back and then kind of say it again and you know preachers never do that right they never kind of say it over and over and over again but anyway that's what paul did he said i want to make sure you get what god wants for you at work at the thing you do monday through saturday so if, if i didn't make it clear this so th- this is this is a message dealing with living life monday through saturday And this is what he says. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters. That's Ephesians 6, 5a. Someone once said, well, what is 6, 5a? That's just the first part of a verse, all right? Um, And and I think we could all kind of see the simple point there. Uh, If you have a to-do list at work, or and that could, again, whatever you do during the week, if you have somebody over you, here's the very simple thing on the to-do list. Number one, do what the boss tells you. Um, men, that might be your wives. No, man. Is, uh, do what the boss tells you. Okay? Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters. Now, I am um, trying to resist the temptation to kind of give you a whole background of what slavery was in the Old Testament and in the time of Rome and and all that was going on there. But this was a radical thing to say to people who, who had come to Christ, who, who were set free, and, and now the, the Apostle Paul was telling them, okay, now the rest of the week you go back into your slavery, and you've got to do, do what the boss tells you. You've got to do what the master tells you. And the word for obedience here is actually the same word he uses for the, the children to the parents. It's that idea of hupa kuo, acoustic. You need to listen, hear, respond, and do. Now, how do we understand that? Because this was a brutal environment, particularly those who were slaves in the Roman Empire. Uh, just reading a few things on that. William Barclay says this about that particular environment. Uh, masters looked at uh, their agricultural experience this way they divided their instruments into three classes the articulate who were slaves the inarticulate which were animals and the mute which were tools and and vehicles 
A slave's only distinction above animals or tools was that he could speak. The Roman statesman Cato said, Old slaves should be thrown on a dump, and when a slave is ill, do not feed him anything. It is not worth your money. Take sick slaves and throw them away because they are nothing but inefficient tools. Augustus wrote uh, crucified, uh, that, a, cru- that Augustus crucified a slave who accidentally killed his pet quail, and a man named Apollo threw a slave into a bond of deadly eels for breaking a crystal goblet. Juvenal wrote of a slave owner whose greatest pleasure was listening to the sweet song of his slaves being flogged. Did any of you have that kind of a boss that he worked for? I mean, we're talking, he raised the, the standard much higher here, didn't he? He said, you have, been, you have been rescued, but I want you to go back and I want you to make an impact on the people you know at work. And I want you to be now not a resistant slave, but I want you to be obedient from the heart. I, I want you to do what they say. Now, even... even Horrible masters, even horrible bosses. If you do good work for them, it's going to be rewarded. And he said, you're going to be radically different than all the other slaves who are trying to get away from things by being a slave that does what the master says. Now, sometimes there's a controversy about, well, why why didn't Christianity come out and abolish slavery? And why wasn't it taught by Jesus and the apostles? Because God radically changes a culture when he radically changes hearts. And as the gospel spread throughout the Roman Empire, eventually slavery was obliterated. But it had to come from the heart. And if you look, in the, in the Roman, if you look at the Jewish culture in the Old Testament, you, you need to understand that that slavery was radically different from the Roman uh, slavery as well as the slavery of European and American culture related to black slaves um, that was oppressive. In that day, basically, slavery was a way for people who were in bankruptcy that were, that were, in, uh, that, that were incapable of providing for themselves came into the places of employment under people who, who now became their owners and masters. And even in, in, the, in, the, in the culture of Israel, at the year of Jubilee, they were, they were set free. In fact, some say that after every seven years, they were set free. And even, even within our American culture, it's interesting as if you have some of the pilgrims coming over, some of them that came over were, were servants or indentured servants. They were like slaves, but they were paying off debt or they were paying off ways to get over here. Um, on my mom's side, if you go back there, they have this place where they reenact the whole pilgrim's village there. And, there's a man named George Soul. My mom's maiden name is Soul, and and they have them enacting this whole experience in the first person. and And you can meet George Soul, who was an indentured servant as he came over um, from England. But after a period of time, he would be set free. But the point that I'm simply making, that Paul simply made here, is we think about whether we're volunteering for someone who is a difficult person to work with in a volunteering experience or whether we're working with family or whatever we're doing Monday through Saturday is that the best that we can when we're in a position where we're under someone else is simply do what they say. 
But Paul doesn't leave it there because he goes on and says this, slavers be obedient to those who are masters. And then he says, according to the flesh. So he's kind of like a good lawyer here. He qualifies it a little bit here. He says, I want you to understand there that there's a limitation of this. And of course, even earlier, you could imply from other parts of Scripture that they were not to obey a master who was going to have them do something illegal or immoral or against the law of God. But in this point, he says, according to the flesh, which simply means you understand that they are your master in a specific area of your life. And if it was an employer-employee position, it was, okay, they're your master at work, but when you're not working for them, they don't tell you what to do in every part of your life. And, and this would come to them because the opposite of the flesh would be the spirit, right? And many of these people, when they first came to know Christ, you had people across the, the, the social strata. You had people who were slaves, and you had people who were masters that became Christians. And so they would come to the same church, and now here you had this master sitting next to a slave. Or what might have happened is you might have had the the slave teaching the master the word of God because they came to know Christ earlier, which it probably was the case. And, and now they were instructing him, their, their occupational master, in the spiritual arena. And now they were hearing instruction from their, their slave or their servant. So he said, you need to understand that, that this is only in one part of your life. And also you need to understand that this is not going to last forever. That this person is, is, you know, according to the flesh, when you're living in the flesh, but you're going to be in another place, they will not be master over you forever. Now, in our particular culture, you know, making the analogy here is when we're under someone in a job situation, they tell us what to do when we're working for them. But if we change jobs, right, then we no longer have to do what they tell us what to do, Right. Have you ever had that situation? You move from one job to another and you met the guy who was your boss or the gal who was your boss and maybe they kind of by habit tell you what to do and you're like, wait a minute, I don't need to do what they tell me to do. I don't work for them anymore. And, and so he's saying here, you need to be obedient, bond servants, be obedient to your masters according to the flesh, which means now in this relationship and in this part of your life, you will be obedient, but not necessarily in all areas and particularly in the church. Thirdly, he goes on, again, one of his qualifying statements. He says, with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. And I would, I would rephrase it this way. I would say what he's saying here in terms of how we live out our, our, our faith in, at work. Not only do we do what the boss tells us, not only do we do it now in this relationship, but we do it humbly. Now, why do I say, put it this way, do it humbly? He, he says, do it with fear and, and trembling in sincerity of heart. He was well aware that, that they were resistant to this, particularly as they became more alive in Christ and saw their freedom and power in Christ. And thinking, why do I have this man tell me what to do? They're not more important than me. We're all equal in Christ. In fact, Paul says in Galatians, there's neither male nor female, nor, nor slave or fr- uh, nor f- uh, free or slave. We're all one in Christ. Why, why this person telling me what to do? He says, you need to understand that, that as you are in this, in, in this particular position of life, working for this person, you are to respond to them, not with pride, but with humility, because you have a healthy fear of them. Now, you know, simple analogy. If, if a person was at Grand Canyon, and now they put up more gates and fences around there, but some places in the Grand Canyon, you can get pretty close to the edge, right? 
Now, if you got really close to the edge, you got really super close to the edge. What do you call that person, fearless or foolish? Foolish, right? I mean, they don't have a healthy fear about what could happen if all of a sudden they tripped or they, you know, they just leaned over a little bit too far and went down a long, long way. Okay? And, and you know, why is a person who, being foolish when they're in that close to the edge of, a grand, of the Grand Canyon? Because they think that they're, they, uh, they can handle it. They're pretty proud about it. I, I got great balance. I'm not going to fall. I got great balance. Now, they don't realize how soft the ground might be underneath them, whatever it might be, but they, they think they've got it under control. And often what happens, people, people who, who respond in a, in a negative way at work, they, they, they're filled more with themselves, and they lose that sense of fear that that person, depending on how you respond to your boss, you could lose your job, right? You ought to have a healthy fear about a person who is over you. Now, again... It, this is true in the church and in the home and at work. This all mirrors our relationship with God, doesn't it? Should we ever lose a healthy fear of God? I mean, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Now, I know many people want to, to phrase that as, you know, fear is reverence and awe. And that's, that's true, but let's just be honest. If, if I were to use normal language and say, I'm, a, I'm fearful about something, you would be thinking I'm scared of something, right? Uh, you know, I kind of, you know, there's a sense of awe oh, when you go to Grand Canyon, how big it is and how awesome it is. But there's a sense that you have to be careful when you're getting close to the edge. And we should never lose that in our relationship with God. Not that God is going to condemn us, but that God is, is, the, is the dispenser of discipline. God is the dispenser of consequences. And, and we want to have a healthy fear of the one who is over us. And that is true in, in the workplace as well. So how do, we, how do we deal with life and when we're working with people? We ought to do what the boss tells us. We do it now in this relationship. We ought to do it humbly. Fourthly, we ought to do it when we think no one is watching. Do it when we think no one is watching. He, he goes on in Ephesians 6, 6 and says this, Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. You know, it's amazing how some people work really hard when who shows up. The boss shows up. And how little work they do when the boss is not there. And he is saying, look, it, there's nothing new out of the sun. People did it back then, and they do it now. And, and we need to realize that we are, we are called to be people who, who, who do it because this is, this, this is honoring to God. You remember in school when the substitute teacher came? You know, how'd the students act? A lot of them, that they test the teacher to the max because they realize this teacher is not going to give me the final grade. We can mess with him or her as much as we want. Or, or the same thing, even it's the true teacher. When the teacher's in classroom, you act a certain way. When the teacher gets out of the classroom, you act a different way. When the coach is there, you, act, you, you run the drills one way. When the coach is not there, you're sitting on the stands until he gets back. You know, it, it's all about who's watching. He says, I, I want you to be radically different. I, I don't want you to, to do what you do because people are watching. Because sometimes people are not watching. But I want you to realize there's someone who is what? Always watching. And, and do it from sincerity of heart to please him. Fifthly, and, and this he hits really strong as well. 
do it like you're serving Jesus. He says, with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Do it as to the Lord and not to men. Now, you, you can't raise the bar any higher than that, can you? you know, who, who's your boss? It's Jesus. Well, you say, you've never met my boss. My boss he's the farthest thing or she's the farthest thing from, from Jesus. And yet Jesus liked to use that analogy, didn't he? You know, remember the time in Matthew chapter 25, he's talking about you know, someone giving a cup of cold water and helping in various ways. Well, when would we ever do that? He said, when you did to the least of these, you've done unto me. And so we need to have that perspective that what we do as Christ followers, we do it always for Jesus, for his purpose. There's an interesting passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, where Paul writes to the church there and to Timothy. He says, let those who have believers as their masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but let them serve them all the more because of because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Now, that is simply saying this. Some of them, they're, they're just like us. They're saying, okay, my, my boss, you know, I, I, I go to the same church with him. You know, he's, he's the master, I'm the slave. And so we've, we have this good fellowship going on and, and things are going well. So then when I go back to work, because he's a Christian brother, I don't have to work as hard as the other people at work. Because, you know, they're, you know we know each other. They said, don't disrespect the person who is in the Lord who is over you. You ought to work as hard, if not harder, for him. You should not take advantage of a relationship. You know, you know that's why a lot of, or a number of businesses don't have, um, they have nepotism-type rules or regulations. They don't want any family members working within the same organization because they're afraid one of two things will happen, either uh, most often what they're afraid of is that there'll be favoritism. That somehow, well, that's, that's my dad or that's my brother, and so I'm going to be promoted because that's my dad and that's my brother. Or they can work ho- less because there's a relationship there. And, and, and God said, look, at, if we live for Christ at work, we give it our all because we're serving Jesus, and he's the one that's grading our paper. He's the one who's grading our, our project. You know, it's, you know, sometimes people say it's good enough for the government, you know, if it's a particular job. Or sometimes they'll say, well, it's good enough for the church. We, we ought to be given our very best. Which then gets down to really the last point to the, the employee is that when we think of God's to-do list, we ought to do it with excellence. He goes on in Ephesians 6, 8 and says this, Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or a free. Realize that, you know, would you give that project, would you give that effort if Jesus was the one you were doing it for? Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, do heartily for the Lord. And in Ecclesiastes 9.10, Solomon wrote this, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Now, now we're not making an idol of excellence. We're not talking about perfection. There's, there's nothing that we can do really that's perfect in this world. You know, Jesus is the only one who can, can, can measure perfection. But do we give it our best? And sometimes it's limited by a variety of things. Maybe, maybe the project 
if you had 10 hours to do it, you know, you can make it a lot better, but you really only have an hour to do it. Well, you do your best one whatever time you have. Or maybe you don't have the resident skills or the tools to do it. Well, you do it the best that you can. The issue is, are, are, we, are we giving it our all? Not, not that someone else couldn't do it better, but are we get, are, are, could we have done it any better? That, that's the measuring stick within the time frame and the priorities we have. I guess what, what Paul was trying to emphasize here is we need to realize that our testimony is not only our specific words about Jesus, but how we live our lives. Living our lives in such a way that, that we understand the, the way God has put this world together, which is submission and authority. There's, there are people who have responsibilities to give leadership. And, and when we're in those kind of relationships, that we need to submit and to do our best. And that when we do that with the right attitude, and we'll be looking at that in the Bible study this week and from Philippians chapter 2, is that God is honored by that. Now, he spends a lot of time speaking into the lives of the, of the, of the, of the servants, the bond servants. And primarily, he probably did that because most of his people were servants. Most of them were slaves. Probably there weren't as many uh, masters in that church but but he did speak into them and he and he said this very plainly in, in ephesians chapter 6 verse 9 and, and you masters do the same things to them giving up threatening knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there's no partiality with him and i guess you could put it this way do it if you're an employer knowing you are accountable to god you know, you know, people, you've heard that phrase, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts what? Absolutely. If I'm never going to answer anybody, if, I, if I'm the one not only in charge, but I'm totally in charge, there's no one above me, there's no one's going to measure me, there's no one going to grade my, my actions or behavior, then I'm, man, I, I'll do whatever I, I want. Kind of like government when they make laws that they don't have to follow. But anyway, that's a whole other study. Okay. <laughs> Is, is when you realize that there's going to come a payday. That what you do as a leader, as an owner, as an employer, eventually you're going to be made accountable to that. Now, for those who were employers in Paul's church, they began to realize, oh, uh, I don't have absolute power. I'm going to be held accountable. God is going to judge me in the same way I've been judging the people under my, my roof of influence. I'm accountable to, to be the kind of person I want to be evaluated in the same exact way. I'm sure also, as he said that to the employers, employees, and we're using that as an analogy, slave master, it was a word of hope for them as well. Because we as adults never grow out of that childish perspective that, that, that somehow things ought to change, particularly when, when things aren't fair, right? That's, that's the first thing a child does after a while when they try to persuade. That, well, that's just not fair. And a good parent says, well, life is not fair, right? Have you ever said that? Okay. I said that many times. Okay. Life's not fair, right? Um, but we, we say that to our kids, but then in our experience, when life's not fair, we go crazy, right? That's just not fair. 
And God is saying slightly different than how we say it. He's saying, well, who said life's going to be fair now? There's coming a time when life will be fair. And all the wrongs, all the misjustices, all the things that, that you legitimately feel bad about and just frustrate you to no end. There's going to come a time when those things will be brought to justice. So whether it was giving hope to those who were under that oppressive experience, or whether it was giving a warning to those who were in that position of responsibility, God was saying, look it, there's a way you can live in such a way that Christ can be seen in you at work by how you respond to, position, to, to responsibilities that you've been given or how you give responsibilities when you're in a position of leadership. Our work matters to God. Work can be worship when we live it in such a way because of our position, our purpose, and the power. We live out the priorities God has for us. Let's pray. Father, we all, we all know this, is, this, this seems to work when we talk about it and think about it, but then when we have to live it out, there. It's the details and the specific situations that so challenge us. And, and sometimes the, the application can have some complexity to it, but in the midst of the complexity, there's some simplicity to it as well. Yeah, what is our attitude? Are we willing to, to submit ourselves to you and give it our best? Are we willing to, to submit to the authority are we willing to be responsible when we're in authority? Are, are we trying to, to live in such a way that people can see Christ in us with our attitude and actions? Help us to live in such a way that people can see Jesus in us. And we praise in Christ's name. Amen. This morning's